I do wonder how that would land as a gift. <laughs> Hi, sweetie, I got you a dog bed. You'd end up in the dog house, definitely. <laughs> but would the dog house have a pluffle? Because I would go. <laughs> I'm Jory Monroe, and this is Another Bite, where we rewatch all the latest and greatest pitches from Shark Tank, and some of the not-so-great ones, too. Joining me today are John Dick and Leslie Green, and today's segment's impeccable. We've got a product that turns any place into a napping space, an app trying to find you locks of love. But first up, we've got a product that looks simply delicious. But before we get into that, a quick word from today's sponsor. Over 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support, so you can grow beyond your wildest dreams, boosting leads and ramping up sales along the way. They even have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. Plus, with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save up to 90% off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot and take your growth to new heights, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. So first up in the tank is Minus Cal, and it's a solution to a growing problem in America. So we've got Barrett Jacques and Chrome Carmichael, and they walk into the room with a beautiful display of what looks like two buff mannequins or wax figures. I wasn't sure at first what was going on over there. Essentially, they're coming to us asking for a $500,000 investment for a 20% stake in their company, and they're pitching us Minus Cal. So this is a protein bar that helps block fat and very debatably lose weight. The older founder, Chrome, suggested that America needs more lettuce and a fewer amount of French fries, which was the exact moment that this duo gave me the ick, but that's fine. Uh, so there was a very scientific presentation of Buff Dude A dancing up on Buff Dude B, at which point uh, Buff Dude B threw him to the ground. And this was to demonstrate how the trade secret ingredient co-leave was to uh, essentially be a blocker to fat absorption in the intestine. But don't worry, co-leave is not a sketchy ingredient. It's a concentrated derivative from fresh uh, green tea. So you can have your cake and eat it too. I don't know. There's so many things wrong with like the supplement and fitness and wellness industry in general. Like I felt like fat phobia was on full display as soon as they came out. And I think it just really turned me off. So... Yeah, I was I was not in. I used to work in health and wellness. I worked at Self Magazine for a long time, which really tried to like fight a lot of these stigmas and these mm. just kind of snake oil salesmen when it comes to supplements. And I just, my red flags were going off throughout the entire presentation. So I am totally with you, Leslie, that my initial reaction was actually pretty negative. Uh, I've tried to give it an honest take, which is like, actually, I think there are lots of interesting supplements in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a space and I know lots of people who take different supplements to achieve certain goals and they feel strongly that those supplements help them. That said, I think specifically targeting just pure weight loss, like most of those supplements are meant to accomplish something else, either better brain function, uh, better sleep, you know, better muscle building, a whole bunch of things that you're like, yeah, I, I, I kind of get that. Just purely being like, hey, you don't have to change anything else about your life. You can just eat this bar and suddenly like you just won't gain any weight. Just isn't isn't doing it for me. 
Well, also, I just want to say this. Like, at the beginning of the pitch, they were like, minus cow is a great way to lose weight. And then halfway in, they were like, we are not no, claiming no, no. We, we never we said help that. you lose weight. As it leaves the body, it takes about 100 calories worth of fat. You can't claim that it's going to reduce 100 calories out of what you eat by taking two pills. Uh, we don't make that claim. That's what he said. We and so it's like, it's just the whole pitch was super contradictory. I think people who get into the supplement space or the weight loss space or fitness, like I wish we could be more just thoughtful and considerate about the marketing. I think a lot of this marketing is really fear-based and most weight loss supplements are fear-based versus loving for your body messaging because, right, it's, it's easier to market off a of fear. The Their poster, it just said, lose weight. Lose weight. And like when they said they didn't claim it will make you lose weight, Robert, I believe, like walked up to the poster <laughs> and was just like, uh, what? Yeah. So I think this whole industry uh, is best described as the hope in a bottle industry. Yeah. Uh, and it goes back forever, right? Like everybody has always for all of time wanted to be able to take a pill, or drink a tonic and have uh, their physical ailments magically cured. And there's like, I think an interesting industry to look at actually is the hair loss industry, because I think the hair loss industry is one of the biggest like hope in a bottle, you know, mm -hmm. categories that exists. Uh, you know, people spend lots and lots of money on shampoos. Rogaine became such a huge hit, even though like if you dig in and learn more about Rogaine, you kind of realize that like it only worked on like 25% of people. And if you remove the placebo, it only works on like 13% of people. Um, but there are some interesting lessons from looking at Rogaine and looking at Propecia, um, which are kind of like well-established business case studies that, that you can kind of dig up and look at. And some of the things are just like, you know, number one, I think for any of these products, you actually have to really understand your, your TAM, like who your persona is and who you're really going after. Like in theory, you can say, oh, well, for hair loss, it's any adult male that's losing their hair, which is lots and lots and lots of people, like 50-ish percent. But you have to dig in more, right? Only a third of those people, it turns out, will take medication. Only a third of those people would consider taking medication if their condition gets worse. And a third of people are just kind of like resigned, like this is just the way I am and I'm just not ever going to grow hair back. So... You know, I think that the challenge is you already have a tightening of your target market for something like this, just based on like who would actually consider taking it. And then you have to deal with how to go to market. And the truth is like, I think you have to spend an exceptional amount of money to actually make progress in getting your product, if it is a supplement or it's hope in a bottle in front of people. And it has to be extremely nuanced, right? Because the FTC and the FDA will be all over you. You know, those are like, you have multiple F-bombs as a founder when the FDA and the FTC, FTC are coming after you. Um, but like, you can't make claims. They very aggressively sue companies that make claims about weight loss. So you need like really huge margins. You need high LTV. Like you need people to continue to want to take this product over and over and over again. And so it just feels to me like even if it was highly effective uh, and even if they could market it in the way that they want to market it, I actually think that it's going to be tough to make uh, all the economics work out of it for it to be a meaningful return on investment. Yeah. I mean, they did do a clinical trial 12 years ago that they were citing. So uh, true. that really gave me a really big level of confidence in the research they were doing. 
And what was interesting also about their claims is like, it wasn't even that they found initially that this was like a, a way to like lose fat percentages, right? Like it was a way to lower cholesterol, right? That's and right. then it was the chief science officer that like, looked at this data again 12 years later and was like, oh, like, by the way, there's some correlation to... in weight loss, but we have no idea. <laughs> right. Turns out maybe all those people just were going on diets or were changing their lifestyle or were working yeah. out more. Because of cholesterol, right? Like, you know, so, gas yeah. prices were up, so they were walking <laughs> places. Like, you know, like, you can't just say there's some correlation and stamp University of Kansas on it and call it a day. Exactly. Yeah, Which think... is what they were doing, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, spoiler alert, yes, none of the sharks took the bait. Uh, they got no deal out of this product on Shark Tank. But do we think it's still a company? I just, they're, this, that space, like the bars, the supplements is so, so, so crowded. And like there really yeah. has to be something that differentiates it. And it obviously wasn't the taste. The claims feel shady. And so I'm going to say there's no way they still exist. Yeah, it feels actually hard to win in this in the um, supplement space without influencers. Yeah, you know, if you actually break it down, I when I think of like supplements like Athletic Greens or whatever that appear to have like real traction in the world, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if they work or not. Like, but most of them have heavy influencer backing uh, behind those supplements to kind of to kind of push that. It would be pretty hard, I think, to make progress if you didn't have like. A good brand, good influencers behind it, probably. And that's, I assume, why they actually wanted the shark's money. Yeah. wasn't so much for the investment money, but was to try and get Mark Cuban talking about this is a supplement that I believe in because that would change people's mind on it. So, uh, sorry, not sorry to say that uh, Minus Cal didn't make the cut and the company is no longer in business, but they were once on sale. So a box sold for $29.95. To, to look amazing, to ha never have any fat on you ever again. To eat ever less again. calories, to eat less Technically, calories. Technically, it's not to eat less calories, it's to minus the calories out of you, I think. Exactly, yeah, that's which like, really doesn't make sense. You're pooping out your calories. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. what's going on. Next up in the tank is Coffee Meets Bagel, which was actually a familiar name. I had heard of this before. And it's brought to us by the Kang sisters, uh, Arum, Dawoon, and Sue. Coffee Meets Bagel is a dating app that takes people's Facebook friends into account with their matching algorithm. So on typical dating apps, uh, algorithms sort of treat profiles as pieces of data to be queried from a database, but the Coffee Meets Bagel app is meant to sort of simulate the time of happenstance where you would meet people through people that you already knew, um, hence the Facebook friends feature. They come to our sharks with their app already on the market, but asking for a $500,000 stake for a 5% equity, which puts them at around a $10 million valuation. So. Given our pitch, given our knowledge of dating apps, what was our thoughts on Coffee Means Bagel? Like they had all the buzzwords. Yeah. They had like microtransactions, <laughs> they had machine learning, they had network effects. They were early to the like ephemeral relationship or connection game a little bit. Uh, definitely unique there. But uh, I think they definitely had a buzzy pitch which was like, okay, cool. This is a well-established long-term market. We think we can disrupt it through modern, a modern approach and modern technology. Some of the things that I really liked about it were um, there are well-known problems with dating apps. 
was, I was doing a little bit of research just to refresh, but like the, the online dating industry goes back to like 1992, right? And like, obviously like personals went back even further and matchmakers went back even further. People used to pay a lot of money to have people go research good people for them to become matches with. People but still there do. Are, <laughs> they still do. But yeah. there are a lot of like well-known issues once you do this stuff. There's the social stigma of telling people I'm on a dating app. That started, I feel like that's that's changing now. Mm -hmm. um, second is there's just more men than women, right? Third is like the nature of connecting on those apps tends to be very uncontrolled and uh, tends to make certain parties very uncomfortable. There's often like a lack of depth in connecting. It's like super hard to connect over an app and have meaningful conversation and like understand if you're a match with somebody. And there's also just this problem where uh, if you're successful with your app, like the happy people leave and the only people left on the app are the unhappy, unhappy. people who can't find a match. And so you have this like growing pool of unhappy people who haven't been able to find a match. And so there's a little bit of a downward spiral there if you can't keep your user growth going uh, at a really high rate. And so I think that's why it's good. They're out looking for a, like a lot of money. I would argue that they need a lot more than they're going to get from the sharks. And this was more of a publicity stunt than it was a fundraising effort for them uh, because I think they're going to need a lot of money to acquire as many users as possible as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think the part about the user base, like you have your happy users who leave. That's why it is so important in their marketing to like really share those success stories and make that sort of a key tenet of their marketing to show that it is a successful platform and keep growing. Because I mean, we're humans. There's always going to need to be more connections. And as you reach that age where you're getting on the apps, like there will still be more users, but like users are up against which app do I choose? And what are the specific differentiations of this app versus Match.com versus Tinder versus Bumble versus Grinder? Like there's so many. Um, so I do think they found a really unique perspective to that market. And it, it was awesome to just see like they found a real problem in their lives and developed this solution. Yeah. So there, there's a framework for how you can think about dating apps, actually, that I've seen before. And it basically... There's kind of like three dimensions of things that the app can differentiate on or be like unique around. And then there are kind of like three types of audience that can be included. And so the three dimensions are basically uh, you can win on breadth, which is like you have lots and lots and lots and lots of people. Mm -hmm. You can win on the way you facilitate search, which is like how you facilitate a connection between people. Or you can win on interaction, which is like the, what you enable people to do once they connect with each other and how deep mm -hmm. you can do that. And then like the three like uh, types of audience, if you will, are basically you align around like we have some shared activity, like we work together, you know, we went to the same high school. Uh, a second is basically they can be a broker based audience, which is like, you know, somebody through somebody. And the third is basically like what you'd call like the bar, which is like, oh, this is just a bunch of random people. <laughs> so ma Match.com was a breath play and a, at, at the bar. It was like the biggest bar in the world, which is like, I don't know why I would like any of you people, but like <laughs> maybe there's somebody out here in this great big ocean if I just keep looking. And it feels like Coffee Meets Bagel is basically trying to uh, essentially differentiate on breath and broker. Right, because they don't really have search mm -hmm. and they don't really have uh, interaction, I don't think. And so 
this just goes back to my thinking that if they are going to win, they have to get as many people using it as quickly as possible. And it's actually just like an arms race. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting is like my question I had was like, how does this work if you're in a city? You're I moved around a lot after college and that was the time that I was like on dating apps. So if I didn't have any mutuals, could I have used it? I'm curious how they're solving for that. Yeah. Which also, Leslie, brings the broader question, which is now that Facebook has largely changed, <laughs> like you no longer can just like steal everybody's contact information when you click a button. Facebook <laughs> Connect has changed a lot since 2012. 2012 was the pre-Cambridge Analytica where anybody could click a button and get access to all their friends. You know, so there's that change. And then there's now like Facebook has, you know, declining. <laughs> People are off it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. about the ephemeral nature of social and how right now be real is really the topic of conversation and you get this notification and you take a photo. Part of me was like, what if this works if you have your radius set and everybody gets a notification and it's like, hey, would you be available to meet in the next hour within this radius? And I think that'd be really cool where it's like that feels almost like those chance encounters that you run into somebody, but it kind of helps facilitate people because they said their app was really based off the idea of the flash sale, Mm -hmm. but using the be real concept, but for dating. And if anybody listening out there takes this idea, please give me Leslie Green Um, TM. I want to say please give Leslie credit until somebody is uh, until something bad happens. I think that's that's the only issue. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously, you need to have like a fairly large radius, but it would be cool, right? Because you have a group of people who are willing to go on a date at a certain time. And it could feel a bit more authentic than the kind of typical, hey, we match. Let's start this awkward conversation. Let's go back and forth until we feel like we're ready to move to the in-person stage. But just a thought. I I think I love that you're exploring that. I think, though, what you're bringing up that is really interesting is a real challenge for these networks. Like the thing that like in that world, you're no longer in a broker model, right? You're actually in a bar model. You're basically saying, well, I want to differentiate, uh, you know, essentially on breath and I want to differentiate on essentially like bar, right? So I just want to be mm-hmm. make like speed dating basically within a proximity and have people meet up. And I think the challenge for that is like that is a high risk strategy and high likelihood of, you know, issues happening. Like there are ways to, to yeah. get over that though, Leslie, right? Like you could say, hey, if you want to meet someone and see who they are, like you actually have to pay money. Yeah. Or you get like three matches in the area and you do get to have a bit of a selection criteria, not just like, oh, you're both in this 10 mile radius. You guys get matched. You have to say yes to going to the date. Yeah. Um, but it could show you matches in the area at the time who are available for an hour coffee chat yeah. or something. Definitely. Yeah. And I think in terms of like how our sharks are responding to coffee meets bagel you know i think like after the pitch they were they were definitely like interested in it right they were pushing them during the q a to tell them how many users they actually had and mark was just like why won't you give us an actual number they were like it's between 100k and 500k and you'll not get another detail out of us (laughs) right how many users so right now we have several hundred thousand users our business really ramped up. Is it 200,000 or is 700,000? So it's between one and five. One and five. Just what? tell us what, what it is. You want an investment, you can't not tell us. Yes, but I think that's a good range. It gives you a good idea. No, it doesn't. No, but why won't you give us the actual number? We're actually not sharing the exact user number right now for okay, competitive. Okay, I'm out. I'm out. 
Yeah, that is, that is not uncommon from my experience working in tech in the Bay Area for companies that really need to be ultimately valued on user growth to uh, hide that number. I remember used to, like we used to have to hide the number of users we had and we used to give ranges of things. And um, the problem is if you got into an actual investor conversation, of course you revealed the number of users that you had. And this is the problem with doing a public pitch on TV is like, you may not want to reveal that, mm. but no one would invest without knowing that. But it was funny to see that play out. <laughs> and then there was like, there was another moment where Mark, who had been out, comes back on the table and he was like, Let me ask you a question. If I offered you $30 million for the company, would you take it? No. I think maybe he saw the potential of maybe even the founders to themselves through that pitch because they were, you know, they they did know their stuff. They were on it. Like they had answers to the questions that may not have been the answers that they wanted. And so I think maybe some faith was restored through that pitch. But how long has that ever happened before? Is that the the biggest that's ever happened? Yeah, it was up until that point, that was the largest potential deal in Shark Tank history. So it was just like huge number. <laughs> I don't think that deal ever would have ever would have closed. I think that he was actually largely trying to just like exact like illustrate the gap between Silicon Valley and the rest of the world in terms of how mm. people think about things. Anywhere else in the world, if you had a million dollars of revenue and somebody offered you 30 million dollars for your business, you would take it in a, a minute, right? Like it would be why million dollars <laughs> yeah in silicon valley that's not necessarily the case because they haven't really focused on revenue yet right they're basically like we're on a huge tear with user growth like i'm sure in the background they have term sheets coming in from top tier venture capitalists for huge amounts of money saying oh this is going to be a huge network and so i think it was more just meant to to kind of make a point i doubt he ever would i, I can't imagine mark cuban running coffee meets bagel That'd be interesting. Yeah, I was really curious to know how Coffee Meets Bagel fell into the story of Bumble. I mean, Bumble is just such a success such story a success. for dating apps. Bumble was created, I think, in 2014. And then Coffee Meets Bagel was invented in 2012. But they were on the show in 2014. So I, as I was watching this, I was just like, was Whitney watching this? Whitney's the CEO. Was You know, they obviously showed that there was a need. And, you know, Bumble's whole thing is like letting women make the first move, trying to make a really safe space for dating apps. Like we talked about all the problems that do come with dating. So I'm really curious to see how maybe Bumble took this idea and ran with it. And that spoke to how Lori said in the pitch, your differentiation isn't great. Somebody else can just take this idea. Yeah, I think that is actually the challenge. I think Coffee Meets Bagel ultimately tried to differentiate on being a broker, a known broker between people. And I don't think that actually was a long-term winning strategy because of everything that changed in Facebook and everything mm -hmm. that made it really difficult to scale that more broadly. Whereas I think if you look at a Bumble... You're like, oh, we're actually like, we're like, we're kind of running a bar. Like we have tons and tons of people. We're just incredible at facilitating the search process by limiting it. So women have to make the first move and we're incredible at making the interaction process um, structured in a way that makes it fun and makes it easy and puts constraints Safer. on it and safe and all those things. And so I just think it was, I think at the time Coffee Meets Bagel launched, I think it was actually like a brilliant idea. I just think like fast forward 10 years and I think the world has changed a lot. I think Bumble was just a couple years later and a little bit more savvy about the nature of the world. 
So do we still think that uh, Coffee Meets Bagel is a company? Where do we think the company is now? I'd be willing to bet they are. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm fairly confident they're a company. I bet they raised a lot of money. I, I bet they have a multi-hundred million dollar valuation, but I bet there has not been a lot of traction for a couple of years. And I bet that predates, certainly predates the pandemic. I bet it is from like late, late teens. So for those still looking for love at first bite, Coffee Meets Bagel is absolutely still a company. So today they earn uh, $16 million in revenue annually, and they're currently valued at $160 million. So they are very much uh, still a success. Um, so while they didn't find any love with Mark Cuban, they seem to have done just fine in the love department among their customers. I'm happy for them. That's great. Love a love story. Love yeah. it. All right, so last in the tank, we have Pluffle, which is a way to get as cozy as the world's best nappers. So we have our two co-founders, Yuki and Noah, and they come to us asking for a $200,000 investment for a 10% stake in their company. And their product is Pluffle, which is the world's first dog bed for humans. Part of their pitch was they brought one of their dogs on stage and it was the goodest boy just sitting there. So this is a memory foam mattress that has like sort of like the siding that you would expect from a dog bed to increase cuddle factor. So it turns any place into a nap space and it is exactly what it sounds like it, just a very large dog bed uh that you can nap on um so looking at our product thinking about how they pitched it uh what are we thinking about pluffle i'm a very sensory sensitive person and in concept and in theory and i'll out myself on this as a child one time i literally asked my mom to buy me a dog bed i wish this was a joke but i like a very big soft pillow um you know and it wasn't it didn't have the surround sound that the pluffle has <laughs> but i definitely think that for people who are sensory sensitive or have anxiety like you know we saw the weighted blanket movement oh, yeah. like i think there's a lot of good here i think for me again i'm a very value-driven consumer the price of it is just what was not for me, but it's just funny. And they do, they lean into that dog bed marketing, like everything and their marketing is it's a dog bed for humans, a dog bed for humans. And I do wonder how that would land as a gift. <laughs> Hi, sweetie, I got you a dog bed. You'd end up in the dog house, definitely. <laughs> but would the dog house have a pluffle because I would go. <laughs> yeah, you would get the pluffle, they would give you the pluffle and you could take it out to the dog house, definitely. I am a, a self-described floor person, which they also mm -hmm. market to the floor people. Um, this is a, a whole identity on TikTok where are you a floor person? Are you the friend that just like sits on the ground when you go to people's houses? That's me. But yeah, I just I'm a back sleeper. And so it didn't really look that comfortable to me to kind of lay on your back with your feet hanging over that little ridge. So I don't think I'm going to be buying the pluffle like it'd be novel. It'd be fun to kind of have somewhere, but it also doesn't it's not aesthetic at all. And I think you think about like the big bean bags that people buy. I think they're called love sacks. Like those can kind of fit into a room. I think people love to put comfortable things to lie on and shape on the floor, bean bags and, and stuff like that. But I've, I'm not sure how many people would put a adult sized dog bed on the floor of their living room. But what about companies? that want to like seem very hip, right? Like companies that might say have a napping room. What about that kind of demographic? 
I need something to like keep it clean. Yeah. It's gonna have to have Fair. like a. If you told me like, I have to sleep in the same dog bed as all my coworkers slept in, I'd be like, I'm not working at this place. I had to yeah. ask. Can you imagine like you're sticking your Could hands be the new in ping the pong side. table? Oh. <laughs> Leslie, you done in that dog bed? I want to snuggle up for you. You're like, oh, it's horrible. Have you have you have you finished your dog bed session or not? Oh. Can I hop in? Get, I mean, you can buy Murphy beds. You can buy hammocks. There's lots of other things you can buy to enable enable napping. <laughs> well, I was gonna say this was the thing about the price point, Leslie. To your point, is like, okay, it's one thing if you're like, this is a hundred bucks. It's kind of a gag. Like it's kind of it's a quasi gag gift. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we actually think a lot of people will buy it and probably discard it over the next X years, which is incredibly wasteful. Uh, but at four hundred dollars, you're like. Like you can get a purple mattress for like 600 bucks, you know? Yeah. And I think purple is a high, like a high end internet mattress. I'm sure you can get internet mattresses for cheaper. So then you're like, yeah. is this your actual, you're paying the same price as your actual bed? I don't that know. That was my thing. It feels very off. So one of the things they mentioned though, is that they had gone viral on TikTok. So I was curious, Leslie, about like how, or like how marketers should be thinking about that, right? Like marketing novel products on TikTok. Yeah, I mean, TikTok really levels the playing field when it comes to reach and engagement. TikTok's algorithm is just so amazing for discovery. And so, you know, if you've been watching videos regarding anxiety, sleep, it can deliver this product organically without paying for it. And so I think you get this equal chance to go viral. I think that's slowing down as there's more users and more content on TikTok. But I think it's an important message for brands. If you're going to start activating on TikTok, you need to be prepared for that moment if you go viral. I think they went viral, they get all this awareness, but then they can't get the product in the hands of the people. So I think for brands, if you're going to start activating on TikTok, you should be prepared to go viral if that is the case. Um, I think TikTok is an incredible commerce platform, even though it's not like quite like commerce enabled, right? Like Instagram tried to become commerce enabled, which I think they're actually like peeling back now. I don't think it really worked like they thought it would. But TikTok's an incredible mm-hmm. commerce platform because of the discovery and also just because of the format, right? And because of if it's gaggy or it's funny or it's interesting, people want to do their own twist on it and mm-hmm. share it. And so my sense, though, is that uh, their days of vira- virality are over. I think they were a flash in the pan. The, the interesting thing is, like, they're pitching it as a dog bed for humans. And everyone is like, that sounds like not a great idea, except for people who are like, well, actually, like, you know, I have I have sensory issues or like there, there's a range of use cases, but like no one wants to buy a person who has like a dog bed for humans. So you either need to go down the path of like, actually, this is an incredible bed for people who have sensory issues and market it that way. Or you have to say you're a dog bed for humans and just be a joke product. I think it's actually really tough to do both. I, I'm feeling like this is going to be a little bit of a flash in the, the TikTok algorithm. And by next year, I don't know if Fluffle will still be there and I'll eat my words. We can check in later. <laughs> You'll eat your kibble. <laughs> I'll eat my kibble. Eat my kibble, kibble for yeah. humans. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. But the thing is, is people having a dog is such a personality trait. So mm-hmm. they are really hitting that, but maybe they do. They just lean in heavy and it's like, you treat your dog really well. Like do the same thing for yourself. I don't know. Treat yourself. <laughs> treat yourself. <laughs> uh, would you to invest in Pluffle? They're barking up the wrong tree with me. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> As somebody who hasn't just casually thrown millions of dollars at people before, I think I have hesitations about this. But what gives me confidence is that Lori scurried over, did a quick little chit chat with Mark, and they were kind of all in. I mean, I think for them, they said this, it matched their portfolio. They had experience in that industry and felt confident that that could be 
an addition to that. So I don't know. My my gut is saying no, but that that little scurry that the deal that was made gives me a little bit of confidence, but it's just it doesn't seem sustainable like with just that one product. Yeah. Mark and Lori actually ended up sealing the deal for $200,000 for a 20% stake together in their company. So who do we think between Coffee Meeks Bagel, Pluffle, and our uh, Minus Cal, who do we think won the episode? I mean, Coffee Meets Bagel by a long shot to me. I, I okay. don't, But this, I mean, this is tricky, right? Because you're asking me to like pick a winner between like some snake oil. Uh, do it anyway. A, do- a dog. <laughs> They're all in a, different anyway. games. They're all in different games. <laughs> a dog bed for humans and a consumer tech company that is not going to be profitable <laughs> forever and will take hundreds of millions of dollars of venture investment that I don't happen to have in my <laughs> checking account right I now. Do it anyway, John. <laughs> She I was think a winner. Immediate, I think of the immediate, I'll actually say Pluffle. I think like of all these, like I think Pluffle got the confidence they needed from Shark Tank. They got the exposure to likely a very different audience through Shark Tank than their, you know, TikTok virality. Mm-hmm. Coffee Meets Bagel was a delayed win. I agree with John that it is a, a delayed win that they were able to get that exposure and then could turn that into a, a more sustainable product. But Pluffle's just so new. But I think it's actually funny. Their, one of their most recent viral TikToks was basically calling out their professor who said it was a bad idea. Um, it was like a roast. I thought it was so funny. But, you know, they I think they're winning. They're getting that traction they need. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the Pluffle team gets my win of the episode. Coffee meets bagel. I mean, they had a good pitch. They have a really, really, really good pitch. Yeah. No hate to them. No hate to them. I think we're just we're seeing this one differently. was written and produced by Matthew Brown. And guys, you've left over 150 reviews on Apple Podcasts so far. And as Rainey says, first time listening and I love it. And we love you. And Jay Nixon says, funny, insightful, and on point. Go ahead and tell your friends, your family, your lifelong nemesis neighbor down the street, whoever, tell them about another bite. After all, word of mouth is the greatest podcast gift there is. I'm Jory Monroe and see you next week for another bite.